All right, it's Eric Gilmore and Dave Papavisi. We are now looking at First John chapter 3. We have enjoyed 1 and 2. We have the links. I'll put them up above if you want to watch it. First chapter was really focusing on fellowship with God is the light, and that's how you live pure before the Lord. Chapter 2 really showed us a love of God, a love of each other, and loving not the world, and how that all played out. But now we're in chapter 3, and the heading on my... In my Bible, it says, children of God love one another. So it seems like he's going to dive into how being born of God manifests itself in selflessness one to another. Any initial thoughts, Dave? Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's again, it's, it's the simplicity and the beauty of the gospel that I think John is. Is, is walking us through. He's walking us through the garden of the simplicity of the gospel and pointing at every stop, every thought, at every stop, pointing us back to Jesus. He starts out here, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. So he, he initially tells us we are born of God, not just called that to be that but actually are he says we're called children and such we are we have the seed of god in us i believe the the greek word actually has to do with sperma like he is actually given to us a piece of himself or we're created by a piece of his himself his spirit makes us alive i remember you told me one time a quote from an old writer i won't say his name just for the sake of controversy but he said god only communicates with his own kind. God only communicates with his own kind, which shows when the Spirit of God quickens us to life as his children, now we are that which can know him. What do you think? Yeah, yes, yes. The new creation. It's it's the new creation. We are called to be children of God. It's... Um, it's fundamental for communion with God. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he says, pray in this way. Don't pray like the, like the Pharisees. Don't pray like the Gentiles who heap up meaningless repetition, think that they will be heard, but pray this way. Our Father, our Father, the foundation for all communion happens on the grounds of being accepted in the beloved, being adopted as sons and daughters. So, um. Oh, that's interesting. He yeah. also, when he's teaching prayer, his illustration is if a child asks of the father for a fish, he will not give him a stone. He also connects, again, prayer to being a child. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. So, uh, yeah, so it says, Beloved, <laughs> he emphasizes it again. Now we are children of God. And then here's this incredible statement that, just makes my heart actually get really excited. He says, and it is not appeared as yet what we will be. This divine seed that has made us to be sons of God is not yet fully manifested. So there's something that's going to happen to us that has not yet happened. And if what we have experienced already is the beginning of it? I can't even fathom what it is. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. He says it's interesting. 
I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, he says, it has not yet appeared what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him mm. as he is. I mean, to me, this verse is amazing. <laughs> and then the next verse really connects it to real practical application. But um he's he's definitely talking about a, a, a metamorphosis transitional period we are children and we we will become all the more what we already are uh, a higher gradient without restrictions without the veil of the flesh without the things that limit without bodies that decay wow. um connected it's connected to his appearing our own identities will be all the more revealed. Our purposes, our meaning will be all the more, will be, will come to perfect, you know, fulfillment, fruition, enlightenment. When we see him as, as he is, it's interesting because he is the model son. I mean, he is God, the son, and he perfectly relates to God, God loving God, God the Son loving God the Father. Son to Father in a way that is, is beyond human words. We, we can't use human words to even express. We know we're children, but we don't really know how to fully be children, nor can we fully enter into the divine glory and bliss of what it means to be a child without any restrictions to a father until we see him with no restrictions in the father and the father in him. It's interesting, even about the Trinity. One of the things that makes the, tri- the, the triunity of God unique is that God is three persons, but one God. We don't believe in modalism. We don't believe that the father is the son and the spirit. The son, you know, it's, 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 it's three persons that make up the being of the Godhead. What makes the father the father? What makes the father? Let me. I, I, I would submit this, and I know when when we talk about these matters, they're so weighty and they're of such great mystery that I, I we tread fearfully on very holy ground. But I, I can. I, I would. I would submit this. What makes God the Father? God, in the unique sense that He is, is that the Son and the Spirit live inside of Him. And what makes the son fully God, not besides the fact that he's God, the son, is that the father and the spirit live inside of him. And, and same goes for the spirit. The father and the son live within. And so it's it's the promise that Jesus gives us in the gospel of John in God, not in John's letter, but in John's gospel. Is, I will be in you and my father will be in you and my father will love you the way he loves me. The son, the same love that he loved me with will be in you. Back to love him, you know, and so it's uh we will become what what we are in perfect glorified beauty when we see him being just that, being the perfect son. <laughs> I don't know, what do you think, man? It, it but it has to do with us seeing, it has to do with our with our with our vision of God. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I think in a Plain text understanding the return of Christ is that full vision. He shall return and we shall see him. And in seeing him, when he actually comes, not metaphorically, physically, there will be a transformative 
there would be a complete transformation based upon yeah. an unlimited vision. But I think we can take a principle from this that it is in seeing Jesus we become like him. That can yes. be applied even now. So though it is a future event which we hope for, we it's a, he actually calls it a hope that purifies us, actually. Uh, right, the next verse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not only that expectation, but it's a realization, even here, as I begin to turn my eyes towards God and worship and the word and prayer, I see with my spiritual eyes, as Paul says we have in, in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of the heart, my eyes of my heart begin to have a vision of the person of the Lord through the scriptures that is provided to me through the scriptures and and made tasty by the presence, I am able to perceive Jesus, and that transforms me. It performs a work on the inside of me. So I think we can actually do that as well. Uh, on the Trinity fact, um, I think that, I don't know anybody who describes the Trinity better than you, by the way. Anybody who talks about it, I'm kind of like, eh, but when you talk about it, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so even like when I look at this, the Trinity is so mind-boggling. It's like unable to be understood. It's like a mystery beyond. But yet there's this, there's this ability to receive him that trumps even the understanding of him. As, as one early writer said, the Trinity cannot be explained, but he can be experienced. Right. And, and that should trump even the effort to try to break it down. Though I think it's an endless meditation and it is wise for us to think upon it. I think the experience of him should even trump the ability to explain him. Oh, you, you agree? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I, I believe that I think it was Tozer. I think it was Tozer who said that. Maybe it wasn't, but I think it was told you we said that the most important thing about a man is what he believes about God, yeah. right? Like what his, his, what he's received about, about the very person of God. And so, yeah, I agree. I think it's interesting because in the passage, we are children, but we're becoming children. He's clearly talking about transformation. So that has to do 100% with experiencing him, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we want to be transformed. We're called to be transformed. The spirit of God is working within us to transform us. Romans 8, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the son. The, the goal of, of this life is that we would be conformed to whatever degree of glory we are willing to yield to the spirit's leadership in our life, to the image of the son, the image of Jesus. And so 100%, we, we, we want to encounter and experience. And, and experience the person of the Lord, Father, Son, and Spirit, and become like the Son, mm-hmm. who himself is the head of a new creation. Mm-hmm. He, he is the head of a new species of people. <laughs> uh, and like you said, to, to really bring it home practically, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself. That's a, that's a present tense term. Whoever latches their hope upon him mm-hmm. purifies himself as he is pure because if your if your constant meditation is upon the revealing of the son yes it's uh, it's within that meditation the spirit of god unfolds right like layers of an onion i mean which is i mean 
a very poor analogy, but like unfolds to us more and more who he is, his heart, his nature, his words, his will. And by encountering him, we're transformed into the same image. Second Corinthians 3.18. And so I think yeah, it's, it's, it's very practical. The experience of Jesus, the meditation on the person of Jesus, the return of the Lord should transform us. It purifies us, but we're purified by setting our hope on him. Mm-hmm. The foundation of our hearts being purified is filling our minds with him. And to really be practical, you know, we live in a day and age where we have more distraction at our fingertips than any other generation in history could have ever even fathomed, could have ever even fathomed. I mean, from the devices that we carry with us to the Internet, to the to the advertisements in our cities, in our world, there is a war raging. And I know that this is one of the core things that you address in your podcast and your videos through your messages, bringing people people back to giving all of their attention, their heart's devotion, their love to the person of the Lord. But there's such a war for minds, for attention, for thoughts, cluttering our, our, our minds, polluting sin, polluting the space in, in our minds. And, and this verse is so beautifully bringing us back home. The purification, it's in the next verse, it describes what the defiling would be as an inverse to the purity. It says, Everyone who practice, practices sin, so the purity is right from sin. He purifies us from sin. I think it's pretty non-negotiable there. But it's interesting that the expectation, because that word there for hope is actually, I believe, better translated, the expectation. We expect his coming. you know, And not just like a hope, like you shoot a basketball and I hope it goes in. He might return, and I'm really hoping he does. It's more of like he's coming, and we have stretched out waiting for him in expectation for the return of the Lord. And that heart that looks to the world to come automatically is taken up out of the soil of this world. And that sin that we're purified from has to do with this lower world. So it's almost like an imagery is this. When our eyes are looking up in expectation to the return of the Lord, our feet are taken out of the soil of this earth and the sin that this world is united with. And as you made the distinction last episode that the world itself isn't sin, but the system, the understanding, the thought pattern, the value system. So the, the feet being taken up out of the world wouldn't be necessarily not having anything to do with material things in this world or not having anything to do with the world actually physical that we live in, but being removed from the world's value system by looking to the world to come by the return of of the king. So I feel like a lot of times when we try to purify ourselves and not have our hearts set upon the return of the Lord in a world to come, it becomes religious in a negative sense of the word. And it becomes about a, an asceticism. And it's it almost turns into works and law it turns into us trying to purify ourselves apart from an expectation that actually works on the inside of us. Even as the scripture says in Proverbs that the hunger of a man works for him. When the heart hungers for looking for 
expects the return of the Lord, it creates on the inside a desire to get rid of everything that is part of the world we're leaving. Do you, you agree? Yeah, yeah. I think I think I, I I know in my own life the the more I've drawn. Okay, so you know I've been in different seasons of life, even in walking with the Lord. Seasons where I've been closer to the Lord. I've I've been through seasons where I haven't been as close to the Lord as as I would have liked to have been in a particular season of life as a believer now for 23 years. And you can hear a word, the word of the Lord in a, in a season of life where your heart is not fully enthralled with him. And it can really seem like a, like a, like a heavy word. And I think part of the reason that it seems so heavy is, is because you're trying to perform the word, but you're not really fascinated with him. And so it's, it's, it's heavy. Do you know what I mean? Like, the, like, the, like the word of the Lord feels heavy, but when our hearts are lifted to Him, it doesn't feel heavy. It, it, it very much so may require and will entail laying down of, of all different kinds and aspects of our life and sacrifice. But, but there's a, there's a, there's an ease to it. There's a beauty to it. And even in the midst of the pain, the sting of the pain, there's pleasure. The pleasure of His presence. And so that's why it's so important, especially as we, the generation that we're living in in these last days, that we we are not trying to obey the Lord apart from the Lord. Hmm. And and that's one of the reasons people get so disillusioned. The farther away they get from God's presence, the more disillusioned they become with God's word. Mm -hmm. And the more that they start to look at the Lord and feel like there's something wrong with him uh, or his commands. And then we start to change God's will based upon our preferences and our expectations and things like this. And that's very dangerous. Um, but yeah, no, it's, that's so important. The point that you're bringing up. So everyone who practices, practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That, that to me, it gives a definition to the man that's spoken of that will come called the man of lawlessness. Sometimes that whole phrase, because of our 20th century mindsets, we're like, what does that even mean? It's sin. He's a man of sin. And so, right. <laughs> so it says here, you know that he appeared, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. Wow. His, his appearing, him becoming a man, he has come to take away Sin. Praise God. That just makes my heart remember the joy of salvation. He has come for this reason, to take my sins from me, for, take your sins from you. And in him, there is no sin. No one, and, and now this is what I really want you to touch on because people get confused here. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him talk to me yeah that's no, good um so everyone who makes a practice of sin and that the key word there is practice so everyone who practices sin it's like practicing your jump shot right like it's you you're 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 ever you're ever doing it over and over and over and of course with that becomes you know comes strongholds and addictions to sin practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness so there's a difference between the term lawlessness here and how we would think about 
gaining or earning righteousness through the keeping of the law, which Paul addresses and the New Testament letters address. And then he, John's about to address in the next couple of uh, verses, actually, when he talks about practicing righteousness, which is the opposite of practicing lawlessness. Lawlessness is the refusal to be governed by God. Mm. You cast off the Lord's rule. It's Psalm chapter 2, where the nations gather. The Lord laughs from heaven, and they say, let us break his fetters. Let us cast off his ropes. Oh. I guess depending on what, what version we're reading, the terms that are used. But the idea is that we're tired of being underneath his rule. We want to be gods, the temptation in the garden. If you eat of the fruit, you shall be gods, yes. you know, unto yourself. And so sin at a fundamental level refuses God's rule and refuses along with it God's nature and God's ways. It is by definition contrary to the rule, person, nature, and ways of God, which is de facto contrary to life, contrary to love. Contrary to all things good, because that's who God is, right? And so sin is the practice of that. Sin refuses boundaries that save us. And, uh, yeah, like you said, he's appeared to take away sins. In, in the ESV, it says no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I believe that's, that's the, the, the original language is what is that speaking to? And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him known him the idea there is i believe that living in perpetual sin without remorse or repentance proves that our hearts are unregenerate mm-hmm. again without remorse or repentance mm-hmm. if if we can live in sin practice a lifestyle of sin devote ourselves to a pattern of refusing god's rule over us without remorse Without sorrow, without repentance, he's saying we have neither seen him or known him. And I think it's interesting he uses that term seen because that's the, that's what he talks about in verse two. <laughs> we shall become a glorified version of what we are when we see him mm-hmm. who is God the son and everyone who hangs this hope upon him, upon what? Seeing him mm-hmm. and all those who see him now in their hearts, not even face to face are entering into the submission of their hearts to the Holy Spirit to be purified. Well, this verse over here, these people are not doing that. They have never seen him and as a result known him. Many will stand before me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things for you? Right? Their, their, their ministry resume. I never knew you. You never saw me. Hmm. Right? I mean, that, that's when he's saying, I never knew you. They don't know him. They don't know him because they haven't seen him. And the evidence of it is 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 a that same spirit of lawlessness there there yeah there's a difference between the christian who in a moment of weakness compromises and shoot and and by their own choice certainly fails god but it feels the brokenness of remorse and contrition turns to the lord is washed by the lord god brings him back into his mercy pours out his love upon him that that's very different than the person that he's talking about in this verse so when he says here that no one who abides in him sins, contextually, he's talking about the practice of sin, correct? Right, right. And and again, in, in the ESV, it says 
keeps on sinning. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning or, or lives the perpetual life of sin. Right. So it's, it's in the tense, also in the context that it is abiding in him. No one lives that way. So no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And then on that note, he says, little children, make sure no one deceives you. So do you think that this, the deception means there are people who are living in sin and claiming to abide in the Lord? Yes. Yeah, that's good, man. I mean, I think, I think that we're seeing it all around us. Wow. I think that even in the last, what would you say, less than 10 years, maybe 10 years, even before that, I mean, I think there's always been perversion in the midst of authenticity the enemy's always trying to send in you know uh wolves in sheep's clothing so to speak to to deceive uh but um like the hyper grace message over the last 10 years where on the one hand it's like this it's like a bait and switch on the one hand they're lauding the grace of god which we revel in which we celebrate in the authentic, beautiful grace of God by no means by our own efforts or works. Are we accepted or loved by God or made what we are made into as children of God? But then as a result, but, but, but with that, it's so because of God's grace, it's completely disconnected from any response on, on, on your end. So I think we're, I think we've seen it with that in the last generation and we've seen what it's turned into where now you have churches where you know, there's uh, they're demanding that that they would marry same sex marriage people. You have pastors coming out as openly homosexual. And if that's how people choose to, to live, that's their choice. They, they can live however they want to live and they will have to answer for that. But they cannot claim hmm. to be upholding the truth of Scripture. And and obeying the God of the Bible or the God of heaven and living that way. Do what you do on your own, that you're free to live the way you want to live. You'll have to answer for your sins. We'll all have to stand before the throne of God. But don't but don't try to point to the text. Don't try to point to the words of life and say that this is in any way, shape or form the image of God. And so I think that we're seeing it. I think we're seeing it everywhere. I, I don't know what you think. And, and here's so, and go ahead. I, I would love to hear your thoughts. And I, and I want to ask you another question connected to this. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you nailed it on the head that there is a a delusion that men have created and live in where they don't want to let go of God, but they don't want to be under God. And that, I think, is the essence of this right here is don't be deluded. You cannot live above God and claim to be in his shadow. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question I have then is, and 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 I don't even know if this is the right time to ask it because it could, it could be such a a long winded answer depending on you know we could talk about this for people have been talking about this for years but do you believe the scripture as a personal opinion and I know brothers who are men of God that hold both sides of the of the field so to speak. But do you believe as a, as a Christian that somebody can be genuinely born again and because of willful sinning can cut themselves off from the grace of God to the degree that 
they they can forfeit eternal life? Or do you believe that if if they're living this kind of a life that John is talking about, you never you must have never seen him, you must have never known him. Maybe you had all the trappings of Christian faith, but never actually entered into a born again experience. I like you said, I know people good people on both sides. I can't say that I would invite anybody on it because I can see both in the scriptures. But if I was going to go with my personal experience based upon what I'm seeing in the, the scriptures, I would lean towards the side of forfeiting because I know some people that I was with that walked with God. I know they walked with God. I experienced God together with them. You know, they... They were really living for the Lord, and today they have rejected the Lord completely, and they don't even believe in Him anymore. And I know that if, I know that they forfeited Him, who is their salvation, for lusts of the flesh, for, like you said, lawlessness, being wanting to run and rule their own lives. They broke off the fetters that are so beautiful, which is Christ's rule. So I would lean towards the side of forfeiting rather than saying they never knew. If they if they left, then they never actually knew. What about you? Yeah, I, I think I, I, I stand in the same place. Um, I don't believe – I'm not a hyper either, you know, left or right, so to speak. So I don't believe – and for those that may be watching that maybe somebody's in, in, in a point of their life where they're really struggling in a particular area of their life but genuinely love the Lord, genuinely have experienced a born-again experience and wanting to get free, I wouldn't want that person to believe that that based upon the revelation of the Scripture that because of your sin yesterday, you you failed the tenth time in the same area in the last month that now you you if you were to die this moment you'll be you, you will forfeit eternal life uh, at the same time i do believe that you can forfeit and and we see it even in god's covenant with israel where where the lord divorces israel he you know he israel breaks their covenant with god but but and god pursues them pursues and pursues and to me israel is such a picture of the people of God in the old covenant, even before the revelation of the grace of God, you know, in, through the cross. But even in, even in the midst of their hardness of heart, he's pursuing because he's chosen them, not based upon anything that they've done, but based upon his goodness and his mercy. Mm-hmm. He's called them out to be his own. But at a certain point, and now what that point is, I'd, I wouldn't be able to say. I mean, I. I can, I can lean on in the scriptures when it says, like, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. I wouldn't encourage anybody <laughs> just to be on the safe side. You know, I wouldn't encourage anybody, you know, gun to your head. Don't deny the Lord, you know, but, but, uh, I don't know that I could point to, okay, it's, it's the seventh time you've done this now. And sure. it's, 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 it's a God sees the heart. God determines why Saul is not fit to be a king. In his first major failure and why David is fit to be the king after multiple falls that were worse than Saul's. I mean, seemingly to the natural eyes, right? God sees the heart. Yes. But I do believe we can forfeit our covenant with God having genuinely been born again. But I would also encourage the listener not feeling like like God has like a 
like a, a bone to pick and he's just waiting for you to fail. The Lord delights in working with weak things mm-hmm. and he, and he re, and he recognizes that it's, it's only to the, to the degree that he's able to pull us into himself that we will be made like him. And so, uh, even in our weakness, He's kind. Even in our weakness, he pursues us. Even in our in, in in our failure, he loves us. He pursues us. Thank God for his for his love and his mercy and his grace. Um, even when we stand before a stone, I'm convinced there'll be a million times when we could have completely blown our lives if it were not for the intervention of the grace of God. And we're not even we're completely oblivious to it, you know, when it's happening. But I do believe that if that sin is a very dangerous thing, and to the degree that we live with hearts turned away from the Lord to that degree, we don't really understand who the Lord is and we're in great peril. Uh, we're in great peril anytime we're outside the, the, the you know, the, the shadow of, of the Lord's rule. I agree with everything that you've said. I, my heart melts at your description of the kindness of God's heart towards us. Uh, he goes on here and gets Really beautiful. He says, the one who practices righteousness, listen to this, just as he is righteous, the one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. I don't think I have always realized that statement. What I mean is, it says, just as he is righteous. That's extremely powerful and shouldn't be read over quickly. <laughs> that the the perfection. Let's, let's think about the perfection we're talking about here. Was Jesus righteous? Was there anything unrighteous in him? Thought, word, de- was there any unrighteousness in Jesus? We would say he is light and in him there is no unrighteousness whatsoever. That standing before God is imputed to me as my life practices righteousness. And I would cautiously submit to you and would love to hear your correction if if you feel like I'm wrong here. If the heart is focused on faith in Jesus Christ and submitted to God, submission to God, the standing before God is as perfect as Jesus Christ, though the life itself doesn't necessarily reflect such perfection. The righteous practice grants that standing. What do you think? You know, I agree. I think that that we are righteous before him, not based upon our works. Right. I think about, again, like the Passover, the people of Israel, the model of Exodus and what it looks like going through the baptismal waters, the things that Paul points to as a pattern of, of what the born again experience looks like. They did not do anything to earn right standing with God. The sinless, spotless blood of the lamb upon the doorposts. And then they take the same lamb and ingest it and become one with it. Right. He says, eat it. And so I believe we stand before God just – I'm sure you've heard the term justification just as if I had never sinned. You know, like we, we can have the confidence before God as children of God 
We can stand before him and be confident in his love towards us, not in a generic sense, but as Jesus says in John 17, he loves us with the same measure that he loves Jesus with. God the Father loves us with the same, the same intensity, the same measure that he, because we are now, as Paul says, his famous term, in Christ. Now it's, it's that right standing alone that is able to empower us to practice righteousness because a righteous position that doesn't turn into a righteous practice is, is, is in fact not actually even a righteous position, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what James says, right? Like it's like genuine faith, right? Like a genuine anchoring in the person of the Lord. Salvation by faith worked out through grace in the blood of Jesus, in the person, in the event of the cross translates into a transformed nature and yeah. a heart that desires God and a power to obey God. And he talks about practicing righteousness. But I agree with you 100%. My question would be, okay, so if that's the case, and we know that to be the case, the one comes before the other, right? Righteousness based on the person of Jesus yes, uh, g- given to us, right? What's the word? Uh, given to us? Uh, imputed. Imputed to us, the, the biblical term imputed to us empowers us now to, to practice righteousness. But what does it look like to practice, right? Like the person listening right now, like how do I practice righteousness? So it's different than practicing lawlessness or practicing sin. That's the guy who came before, right? Of a few verses before. Hmm. We know what practicing sin looks like, right? So what, what does practicing righteousness look like? Yeah, I would grab from verse six when it says those who abide in him. So to me, the practice of righteousness is a focus issue. I am refusing to depart from the person of the Lord. My life is practicing or living a constant desired connection with the person of the Lord day in and day out, which has to do with his word, which has to do with his values, which has to do with him as king, which has to do with giving up my will for his. This is all abiding. So I would say practicing righteousness is holding on to the person of Jesus, his presence, his person. It's my love marriage to him that is being worked out as I learn and grow in abiding in his presence and his word. Uh, I would say in a nutshell, it's focus on its attention, its submitted attention to the Lord and what he values. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think I think that's great. I think that's that's right on. Um, and and um, I would I would even maybe add to that. It's the expression of what a life in right standing with God looks like mm. in the midst of a world of darkness. <laughs> in the midst in the midst of darkness, light shines. And so, looking at the life of Jesus. He embodied truth in the midst of a world of deception and manipulation. Mm. He embodied love in, a, in, in the world of lust and hatred. He, he stood for the words and will of God in the face of intimidation and threats, you know, and uh, threats of, of loss of life and pain and discomfort. He, he chose God's agenda and not his own. Mm-hmm. He chose to, 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 care for the poor and those that were overlooked by others. He chose the way of meekness in the world that celebrates pride and 
<laughs> and hero worship. It's it's what does what does the embodiment of the righteous man what is what does that life express itself? How does that life express itself in in this world, this fallen world? And and it's making a practice of those things. Um, because he's the man of righteousness. Yes, yes. Jesus, just like like you just mentioned, when we the coming of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the man of sin. Jesus is the man of righteousness. How? What choices did he make? Washing my mind with the gospels, Lord, help me to live like that today. Help me to make decisions based upon me beholding you in your word and your presence in this time of prayer. I want to make decisions like that today. Yes, yes. It says the son of God, oh wait, it says the one who practices sin is of the devil. That just kind of destroys this whole theology that's been going around for the last recent years that everyone is born again. They just don't know it yet. Or some have said, do I repent because I'm saved or repent to be saved? People are like, everybody's a son of God already. Like in in Jesus's parables, the lost coin, the lost uh, was the other one, the lost coin, the lost son. There's another one lost, but they were all owned by the person. So they say sinners are already owned by God and they're already his sons. This destroys it. If you live in right. sin, you are of the devil. You are not right. born of God. You are not born of God. Even as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. So it isn't that all men are saved and all men are God's sons. And if, if you wanted to apply that term to all of humanity, it would be we are sons of God by creation, but not regeneration. So I think that's very important to make a distinction there because it's weird when people start saying things like this is the gospel. You're already saved. Just believe it. It's not that way. You must repent. Right. <laughs> and be right. born again. You must be born right. again, meaning there's a problem here, you know. Um, the devil has sinned from the beginning. Now, this is for me. I love this. The son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That word destroy there can also be translated unravel. He unravels the works of the devil. But though this is practically why Jesus came into our physical universe was to unravel the works of the devil, which we know to be sin. We can also see a mystical understanding here that it is the presence of the son of God in our lives that unravels sin in us. The more we come into his presence, the more he appears in our hearts, the more he does that work of unraveling sin in our lives. So there's a mystical application to this practical reality that Jesus did come into the world to unravel the works of the devil. Yeah, no, that's, that's great, man. I'm, I'm reminded of the verse from Hebrews chapter one. It says, because you loved righteousness and hated lawlessness, God, your God has anointed you right with the oil of joy, but certainly with, 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 with the, when we think about the oil of God in the old Testament representing the anointing or the power yeah. of God, the power of God was upon him to destroy the works of the devil uh, on the earth 
and that was connected to his love for God, his love for righteousness and his hatred for lawlessness. That same exact example that John's using here, hatred for lawlessness, love for righteousness mm-hmm. and the anointing of God to destroy the works of the devil. And uh, I'm reminded also John G. Lake, who uh, loved John G. Lake, read his writings through the years, really been moved by God. And even this last season, you know, f- different people, loved ones, special, important people to me and, and suffering in different ways with sickness and disease. And knowing that there's so much more in God, in the power of the spirit, in the promise of his word to see the kingdom of God breaking in with greater demonstration, knowing that there's so much more available to me as a believer uh, and even in the call of God in this part of the world and really really seeking to lean in in a greater way. Lord, when, when you appear in greater ways in our lives, it looks like the anointing of God to see the works of the devil destroyed. Lord, appear, appear in a, in a greater dimension in my life, in my family, in, in, in the ministry to which you've called me. So that you would be glorified, so that we would love you, so that we can live righteously because we, we look at the righteous one. So we, we can have our hearts purified because we're, we're, our expectation is in your return. But, Lord, so that the works of the devil can be destroyed in our generation or push out darkness and sin and, and disease and, and, and these things that seek to strip the glory of God from his creation or distort, let's say, the, the distort the, the beauty of God from his creation. Um, Jesus. When he in Matthew 16, when he says, um, it's on this rock that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Uh, New Testament scholars say that he was on um, many, many New Testament scholars say he was on Mount Hermon, which was or Hermon, which was a mountain that in uh, um, in ancient times, the Jews and others around there would have said that. Fallen powers and principalities and angels had descended upon that mountain and made pacts with men. And they had uh, uh, an, an opening, a cave in that mountain that was the, the gates of hell. They called it like the gates of hell, the pit of hell, the gates of hell. Some kind of like cave that goes down deep into the mountain where they had beliefs that spirits came out of. I mean, Jesus is, chooses to make the statement of the, found, the founding of the church based upon the revelation that God gave Peter right up against that cavern of hell. The gates of hell will not prevail. Jesus is not, he's very, very confident in what he's, what he set out to do. He will dethrone every last ruler, power and prince and destroy the works of the devil. And we've been called to join him and participate in it. It's, it's a joy. Man, praise God. I actually went to that, uh, that mountain. And saw really? The, okay. Saw I haven't been. I've just heard about it. Okay. Yeah, it's now. Maybe I heard about it from you. <laughs> yeah, it's it's actually right now. There's a label on it called the Temple of Pan, and uh, he's oh, wow. he's a demon god. There's demon gods carved into the rock there, um, and the cave has since begun to collapse, but um, slowly it's collapsing slowly, which is in a sense a physical, uh, you know, a, what do you call it? A symbol. Of what's actually right. happening, you know, the true light is already shining. Darkness is passing away, but yeah, they would throw babies down into the uh, pit, and if water, there's a stream that flows out from underneath uh, the cave, and if blood came out of the stream, then the offering was received. But if the there was no blood that came out of the stream, then the offering was rejected. There was orgies practiced there, and wow. uh, 
Yeah, sacrifices of yeah, babies and things like that. It's a it, it was a really really crazy point, but like you said, Jesus goes straight to the mouth, the opening, and he points to it. Of hell, yeah. <laughs> the gates of hell. You know, it's, it, yeah. I mean, he, it's a declaration of war. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, Jesus introduced the reality and concept. This is the first time he uses the word church in the New Testament. The word church is used in the New Testament. Jesus uses it. Matthew sixteen. Up against the mouth of hell, he declares war. I mean, the very birth of his people, this assembly called out from the world to behold him and obey him and follow him and, and, and eagerly anticipate his return. He makes a statement to hell. It's, 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 no, it's no battle between God and darkness as if darkness has any kind of a chance at all. Right. I mean, he's literally going to destroy the Antichrist and the devil by the breath of his mouth when he returns. He upholds the universe together by his word. Because he said it, it still hangs there. If he were to say something different, it wouldn't. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it is, there's no battle. It's it's God in His people mm-hmm. against hell. It's yeah. God in a weak people redeemed, a new creation filled with His Spirit who follow the God Man Jesus. That's how He destroys hell. He hates darkness. He hates the work of the devil. He's grieved every, every, I think one of the things people don't understand about the Lord is that the Lord has suffered more than any other human being in the world has suffered. He identifies with the suffering of his creation. Every, every pain, every disease, every, every tragedy, every accident, every time someone sins, every hurt in relationship, he feels it and his feelings are self-giving and not just self-centered. And so he feels it. All the much more than the, even the person who experienced feels it because his love doesn't seek anything in return. He feels it because he gives himself multiplied by how many billions of people and, and, and instances and moments he identifies with us in our suffering. He hates the works of hell. That's one of the things I pray for for myself often. Lord, give me the fear of the Lord. Lord, let me hate the things that you hate and love the things that you love. Wow. Wow. It's it's indicative of the divine uh, sperm, the divine uh, being born of him here. It says no one who's born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he is born of God. It's evidence of the divine sowing. He sowed his spirit into us. He has given to us his very own seed. And the evidence of that seed is that cry. I think that you just said, oh, Lord, make me holy. Make me pure. I want to live hating what you hate, loving what you love. To me, you're giving voice to the seed that's been planted on the inside of you. That is described right here. No one who is born of God practices sin because the seed abides him. He cannot sin. Because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And then he begins to switch into loving your brother. So he's attacked sin here in these first few verses, and now he's going to switch to loving your brother. Maybe that's where we can pick up, pick up next time we uh, get together and talk about specifically loving our brothers as a manifestation of the divine seed. In a, in a sense, wherever we don't love our brothers, we are re- resisting the work of the divine seed. 
on the inside of us, right? Yes, because God is love, and that's what he's seeking to make us into. Again, we talked about that transformation process. Yes. The end of our life, that we would be that we would be like him. We would love. We would, we would walk in purity. And even for those watching today to be encouraged. Yeah. To really, to really run to the person of the Lord. It's not something that we're able to do for ourselves, but it is the very process we've entered into mm-hmm. the, the, the regeneration, the transformation of life within. And maybe even someone is watching today and they, they, they have experienced God's presence in, in different ways, but they have never actually experienced a born again experience that they would, may, may God touch whoever may be watching that God would recreate us from the inside to Mm. love him and to know him as he is, that he would free us from sin and addictions to darkness and evil selfishness in the ways of this world and free us to the Liberty, the children of God. Yeah. Love and obey him who alone is life. Yes. It's a happier life in the light. It is just happier. It's more alive it's more free it's more enjoyable darkness is death charles spurgeon said to entertain sin is to invite sorrow that's it's the essence of darkness yeah. it's it's after joy it, it's after peace it's after fulfillment and satisfaction but the light christ is the highest joys the highest peace the highest satisfaction known to man father i thank you for this gospel of Jesus Christ who has given himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. We worship yes, It's just not one like you. We can't even have made up something as wonderful and lovely and glorious as you are. We erupt in praise not because we're trying to force ourselves, but because we can't help ourselves with what you have shown yourself to be to us in your word and in our lives. We give to you worship because you alone are love. You alone deserve this kind of response. Worship unto your name based upon your character, your glory. Who you are is everything. And we have seen it and we desire to see it more and we desire to be overcome and swallowed by it. Oh, come, Lord, and ravage us. Lord, may we relish the gospel. May we be overcome by what you have shown us of yourself in the coming of the Son of God. Death, burial, resurrection and ascension and sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts. We worship you, praise you, praise you, praise you. Praise you, praise you, praise you. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for your presence. Lord, even now, those watching, fill them with the Holy Ghost. Yes, Lord. Lord. Fill them to overflowing. Lord, remove doubt and fear and unbelief. Show them, Lord, the cloudless sky of the gospel and deliver them, my God. Deliver them. Deliver their hearts. Deliver their minds. In your precious name, do that thing no man can do and words can't do. Only the Son of Man can do. In your precious name, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. (laughs) Bro. God, man. Wonderful.